Hello, and welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderates, centrists, and independents. I'm your host, Hilary Lombard, and today we're going to talk about an issue that honestly makes me a little bit nervous. Guns. Policy, control, rights, and reform. All of it. We're going to be joined by Dr. Cass Crafasi. She's a gun owner and a gun violence researcher. And she's going to help us dig into gun policies and reforms that actually crack down on gun violence instead of punishing gun owners, why we need to stop excluding gun owners from the conversation, and she tells me why I'm wrong about universal background checks. It's a great conversation, and I know you guys are going to enjoy it. As always, I want to hear from you. So if you have thoughts on the issue or this episode, you can always reach me at talk at moderatepartypodcast.com or Find us on Twitter at ModeratePod and Instagram at ModeratePartyPod. All right, let's get started. Imagine this. You're five years old and your grandparents are your best friends. They're the coolest. Your grandpa loves hunting and you love him. Their house is your playground and uh, in the basement... There's a gun safe full of guns that your grandpa spent most of his life collecting. He says that they'll be yours someday when he dies. He loves to hunt, and he hunts any year that he can get a tag. You have a toy gun, just like his, but it's your size. It's probably your favorite toy. You love it because it looks real, and it has a kick to it, like Papa's. You two watch westerns together. Your favorite at this age is Young Guns, and more importantly, Young Guns 2, when your crush, Kiefer Sutherland, gets shot down in a blaze of glory. Very heroic stuff, guys. Imagine that the first computer game that you ever play is called Deer Hunter. It's on your grandparents' computer, and you're excited because you get to pick out your gun and your camouflage and go hunting for animals just like Papa. It's exciting because you're not old enough to actually go hunting with Papa. Your family grew up on farms and ranches and small towns, and there are pictures of your grandma, your mom, aunts, uncles, all holding guns throughout their lives. Guns aren't scary. They're no different than a buzzsaw or a kitchen knife. Tools. Something you're not old enough to touch, but you see a lot of people use. Now let's fast forward. You're a little bit older, and your aunt was in the Air Force, but now she's a cop. She's the toughest person that you know. She beats up bad guys, she protects people, she's brave. She's like the people on TV, and you're proud, you're so proud. Everybody in your family is so proud. She has a gun that she carries on her all the time, just in case something bad happens. But you're not worried about it. You actually feel safer when she has it because you know that she could protect you from anything. She's the one that tells you that guns can be dangerous. She tells you all of the dangerous and stupid things that she did when she was young and touching a gun that she didn't know how to use. She's the one that tells you that if you don't mess around with guns until you're 18, except in the presence of an adult, she'll buy you one of your own. You can't even imagine having something that cool, that valuable, or that adult. It's all the motivation that you need. You promise her you won't, and you don't. Let's fast forward a little bit more. Now you're in middle school. One day, in seventh grade, a kid your age walks into a middle school just like yours on the other side of town and shoots two kids, just like you. 
It's difficult to understand. Kids don't use guns. Adults do. So, how could that happen? A year later, you're 14, and you're watching TV, and you find out that there's a big college in Virginia, and a guy with a gun went to school one day and opened fire at two locations on campus. He killed 32 people and injured 23 others, and then shot himself. 32 people. That's more than the number of kids sitting next to you in homeroom when you find out. 23 injured. Two classes worth of people. Shot. Why? Apparently the answers are in his manifesto, but you don't really even know what that means. It sounds evil. The word. Maybe he was evil. The shooter. But you don't know. You don't know much of anything. You're 14. When you go home, you watch the news with your family. You see parents crying, students scared. Talking journalists through a horror that they will probably never recover from. You've just hit the age where people are telling you that you should be excited to go to college. That that's where life begins. But on TV, you learn that for 32 people, it's where life ended. Fast forward to your freshman year of high school. You're 15 years old and you're pissed because Coach Dalton caught you texting and took your phone away for the second day in a row. He's filling in for your physical science teacher, who you haven't met yet. When you find out that a code red has been announced, your classroom is locked down, someone brought a gun to school. You know the kid. Not well, but you know who he is. He never comes back to school again. You don't know what happens to him. The first week of your senior year, a town 20 minutes from you makes the news. A man suffering from paranoid schizophrenia took a semi-automatic rifle into an IHOP and killed three members of the National Guard, a 67-year-old woman, and himself. He wounded seven other people. What did they get shot for? Eating breakfast when a schizophrenic man with a gun had a bad day. Later that month, your city's hosting Street Vibrations. It's an annual motorcycle rally that draws people from all across the country. During the event, a leader of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang is shot. and The city is full of bikers and rival biker gangs, many of whom are armed. If the gangs retaliate, it will throw your city into chaos. And as a result, your city is forced to declare a state of emergency. What's that? You've only heard that on the news when they talk about Hurricane Katrina. Now your mayor is using the same words to describe the fallout that it could ensue from a man with a gun. One guy. You haven't even completed your first semester of senior year. A year later, you find out on the news that in Connecticut, a guy one year older than you went to an elementary school and used a semi-automatic rifle to murder six adults and 20 kids. The kids were between the ages of six and seven, which is only a few years younger than your little brother. Six years later, you're living in California. You get a news alert on your phone that a man opened fire at the Harvest Music Festival. You know people there. K-12 
kids you've known since elementary school, some kids you didn't meet till college. You are so scared. There's nothing that you can do but wait to find out if they're okay, to find out what happened, to find out if he was stopped. You're sitting at your desk at your first internship the next morning when you find out that three people you know were shot or injured at the festival. You're watching the news nonstop. You learn the perpetrator opened fire from a hotel window down into a crowd of people that didn't even know that they were in danger. You learned he planned for it. You learned that he used 24 different guns to do it. That's more than he can even hold. 14 AR-15 rifles, all of which were equipped with bump stocks and extended magazines. Eight AR-10 type rifles, a bolt-action rifle, a revolver. Before this, you only knew about AR-15s when you saw the Taliban hold them. How does a person even get that many guns? How did they get them upstairs to their hotel room? Five suitcases. Before this, you didn't even know what a bump stock was, or an extended magazine. But now, you won't forget. Neither will America. That shooting is the deadliest shooting in modern U.S. history. 61 people were killed and 867 were wounded. Battles in war have hurt less people. And all of this was done by one man. I wanted you to imagine that because I want you to understand my experience with guns. The thoughts, history, and opinions that I take with me into this episode and into every conversation that I have about guns rights, gun policy, all of it. I don't tell you my background on the topic to create a sob story where there isn't one. Many people have suffered as a result of gun violence and I'm not one of them, but I have been impacted by it. I'm also not trying to paint you a picture of a young pioneer girl growing up holding a gun like a rattle and having to shoot for my dinner. That's not me either. I'm somewhere in the middle of these things. I'm somewhere in the middle of most things. I think, honestly, a lot of my experiences are similar to your experiences with guns. Maybe you own one. You probably know people that do. Most Americans have observed the after effects of a mass shooting in this country and been afraid on some level that someone could bring a gun into their school or their children's school. I talked about the shootings that left their mark on me in my life at a personal level, but I didn't talk about every shooting that I remember. I didn't talk about Columbine. I didn't mention when 12 people were shot in a movie theater watching The Dark Knight Rises or the 49 people murdered at a gay club in Orlando, the 22 people murdered at Walmart, the 17 people murdered at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, the 14 people murdered at a work event in San Bernardino, and every mass shooting in between. You remember those too, right? I know you do. What's crazy about these shootings is that they are nowhere near the most significant events in my life. I know that I am lucky enough to say that, and many people are not, but it is crazy to think that there is so much gun violence in this country that mass shootings are happening, and they just exist in the peripheries of my life. There's something that I hear about and I feel sad about, 
I really do. For a day. Maybe a couple days. But then I move on. That's an ugly truth that I don't feel good saying out loud. I desensitize myself. We all desensitize ourselves in order to cope or to actually leave the house without being crippled with anxiety. But murder? Death at that scale because of a firearm? At any other point in history, somebody would only experience that during war or a dictator's regime. But in America, land of the free, we experience it multiple times a year, every year, and we get used to it. I've talked a lot about mass shootings, but in truth, mass shootings only make up a fraction of the deaths that happen because of gun violence in this country every year. When I think about things like that, it's easy for me to question why we need guns for anything besides hunting in the first place. But then I think about the women in my life that were saved from abuse or domestic violence because somebody with a gun intervened. I think about moms and dads that want a gun just so that they have the best chance at protecting their family. That's not a bad thing to want. I think about women all across the country the danger they face, and how sometimes having a gun makes them a little bit safer. Should they feel less safe because some guy used his gun to commit a murder? Should they lose their right to protection because somebody else used that same right to make people afraid? It's complicated. It's all complicated. So to make sense of it, I wanted to start with the facts. So... Let me hit you with a statistic. According to the Gun Violence Archive, which is a nonprofit that tracks shootings in America, there have been 144 mass shootings so far this year. They define mass shooting as a single incident in which four or more people are shot, not counting the shooter, in the same incident in roughly the same time and place. To put that into perspective for you, April 15th is the 105th day of 2021. That means that on average, there have been more than one mass shooting each day. Oof. Yeah. I said I was going to hit you with a stat because I knew it was going to hurt. That's a toughie. But it gets worse. 12,315. That's how many people have died from gun violence so far this year. According to Giffords, 38,000 Americans die from gun violence every year. It's an average of 100 people per day. Americans are 25 times more likely to die from a gun homicide than any other high-income country. Each month, approximately 50 American women are shot to death by intimate partners. Many more are injured. Sadder still, the majority of firearm-related deaths aren't even homicides. More than 60% of all gun deaths in America are suicides, and half of all suicides in the U.S. are the result of a firearm. It's a problem. It is a problem, and anyone trying to tell you that it's not is lying. I've been pretty leery about doing an episode about guns because my own opinions on the issue are so murky. I wanted to have a clear point of view on the topic before presenting it to you, but after six women were murdered in Atlanta and ten more people were shot down in Boulder, all within a week of each other, one thing became clear. 
the current system is not working. And it felt negligent to ignore the issue because I was afraid or nervous that some people that listen to the show might hear it and be turned off by it or that, you know, it could get me, could get me a, some negative comments on Twitter or whatever. It's just, it's stupid and it's negligent and I'm not going to do it. So I spent some time trying to gather my thoughts and figure out at least something that I was concrete on. And I came to the conclusion that I firmly believe that gun violence is the problem, not necessarily gun ownership. So I started doing some research to try to find others that were exploring that idea. Once I started researching, everything I found was either very pro-guns or very anti-gun. As I'm sure you know, if you are a human being that has ever tried to enter into a a conversation on this topic. Um, If you listen to this show, you know that uh, it is my view that opinions that are that polarized cannot be helpful. I wanted to follow the data. But there was too much to make sense of it all. Honestly, I needed an expert. But polarized topics have polarized experts. I needed somebody to talk to me about what a real viable policy solution could be to stop gun violence but not punish gun owners. Someone that knew that our Second Amendment rights deserve protection but our lives do too. And then I remembered a TED Talk. I think I saw it like last year. It was presented by a researcher that was also a gun owner. It didn't take long for me to track it down on YouTube and it took me even less time to find the speaker. Her name is Dr. Cass Crifasi. She's a proud gun owner and the deputy director of the Center for Gun Violence Prevention and Policy at John Hopkins. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Truthfully, I learned a lot. And I came out of it a lot more hopeful than I did when I started it, I'll be honest with you. And I hope that you do too. So, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Cass. Hey, Cass. Thanks for being a guest on Mod Pod. It's really nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, too. One of the weird things about doing a podcast is seeing people on webcam that you initially met um, somewhere else or you were initially exposed to in another way. Like, for example, with you, I'm a big fan of your podcast that you did on gun violence. It's one of the reasons that I really wanted to get you on the show. But it is so strange to see you um, as this far and away person on YouTube and now you are here on the show answering questions, which is a very long and awkward way of saying I'm very happy that you're here. Well, hopefully I don't look too terribly different. No, you actually look exactly the same, which I think is why it's so strange, is because you've gone from a tiny person on my YouTube screen to somebody that's like, boom, in my life, moving in response to my questions in real time. Well, happy to be here, moving in response to your questions. Awesome. I, I prefer that as opposed to just dead stillness in response to my question. That would be, you know, I've had some awkward interviews before, but like that would be reals awkward if yeah. I just like sat there staring at you. Especially because it's such a close up on webcam. It'd be so awkward if you were just like dead ass staring at me. Just blinking. 
Yes, exactly. It would be so weird. Um, oh my gosh. Okay, I'm sorry. We're off track. Oh wow, this is going to be an awkward segue, but let's talk about guns. <laughs> so uh, Cass, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you first got involved in gun violence research? In terms of the research side of things, uh, that was something I was a little bit more hesitant to get into, to be quite honest. Uh, my pathway into this research was a little bit uh, windy. So I ended up um, in a PhD program at Johns Hopkins in the School of Public Health, and I was uh, studying occupational injury prevention. Wait, I'm sorry. Is occupational injury prevention like, help, I've lost my finger at the sawmill? Or is it something different? Sure, but like, how could we keep people from losing their finger at the okay. sawmill? Um, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Right. OSHA, which is the regulatory arm, they were going to cut the funding that was supporting my uh, doctoral training. And so I had an opportunity to get onto a violence prevention training grant, but I really wanted to stay true to my interests in occupational injuries. And I had been a first responder a long, long time ago. And so I thought, well, you know, law enforcement officers, they have a dangerous job. They have, you know, mm. a, one of the highest rates of occupational homicide. So I, I decided to start studying uh, assaults and fatalities of law enforcement officers in the line of duty. And in doing that work, mm -hmm. I realized very quickly I needed to become more knowledgeable about guns because when officers mm -hmm. are killed in the line of duty, it's often with a firearm. Uh, and so I needed to just sort of up my game um, in that area. <laughs> and as I did, I was realizing, A, this is a really hyperbolic topic. Didn't seem like anyone in the media <laughs> could have a reasonable um, conversation and B, as a longtime gun owner and someone who supports people's rights to own guns, do I really want to get into this topic? Um, so you just casually walked into one of the most hotbed topics in the American conversation? Uh, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say casually. I, I, I gave a lot of consideration to whether this particular direction of research is something that I wanted to stay plugged into. And I recognized, you know, there aren't a lot of public health researchers studying guns anyway. Like we're a really small field. And mm -hmm. of those who do work in this uh, particular area, not a lot of us own guns. I know that's what made you the perfect <laughs> guest is I was like, because I don't, I think a lot of academics tend to be very, very liberal and their view on the topic is like no guns ever. Because it just, I think that that's the echo chamber that's, that you end up in. And I don't fault them for that at all. But when I found you, I was like, you will be the guest. <laughs> While I am not at all saying I'm representative of all gun owners and gun owner experiences, I certainly bring a different perspective to the conversation than yeah. a lot of my colleagues. And so I felt like this was an area that I really wanted to lean into and So, Cass, you're a gun owner, and you've been one for a pretty long time, right? So how does, or how do you think that your experience with guns impacts your research? I, I legally acquired my firearms, and I'm responsible with them. I don't want anyone coming and taking my guns away um, if I'm not violating yeah. any laws. So that's sort of a, a nice argument to be able to make. Um, Mm -hmm. And I can also use my own experience in terms of terminology and nomenclature and just understanding 
simple differences like a revolver versus a pistol and semi-automatic and some of these other things that often get confused um, by people who have less experience with guns, I can use that to make sure we're asking questions that gun owners aren't going to read them and be like, what does this even mean? Like, clearly this person knows nothing about guns. Um, and I think that's really added yeah. a lot of value to the work that we're doing. Yeah, I imagine that it would make gun owners take you more seriously. Because I think that the gun owners that I know in my life, like anytime we talk about guns, it's like, well, the media knows nothing. So let's start there. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's one thing I focus on whenever I do media interviews is I try to talk about making sure we're using the right terminology for guns, you know, making mm -hmm. sure that when we're um, engaging with people on the topic, that our only answer isn't no one should have guns anywhere ever, but it also mm -hmm. shouldn't be everyone should have guns everywhere all the time, right? Like we need to strike yeah. the right balance. And so doing research to help inform those conversations is really important. And then being able to say, as a gun owner, let's bring in other gun owners to try to co-create solutions and come up with strategies that are effective and supported is really important. That's a good point. Cause there's like no other issue that you would make decisions about without including the key stakeholder. But with guns, it seems like that's the one. It's so interesting that you bring up that point because that's something I've been talking about for a long time. Public health researchers and practitioners and all these folks have recognized the need to take a harm reduction approach to a range of things. If we think just in the realm of injury prevention, we know that pools mm -hmm. can be very dangerous, but we don't tell people don't have a pool at your house. We say maybe put a fence around <laughs> yeah. the pool or don't let your kids swim in the pool unsupervised, right? But when it comes mm -hmm. to guns, for a long time, the reaction was, well, the safest home is one without a gun, so don't have guns in the home because that will reduce your risk mm -hmm. of injury and death. Well, that is not an acceptable response or solution for a lot of people who own guns, some who mm -hmm. own them for self-defense, some who own them for sport, whatever the reason. So let's think about ways mm -hmm. that we can promote safe and responsible gun ownership and use. Store them unloaded, lock them in a safe, don't let kids play with them unsupervised, mm -hmm. right? Like the same kinds of things we would mm -hmm. apply to other injury risks to reduce harm, mm -hmm. we should be using for guns as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a really good point. When you lay it out like that, it makes perfect sense, right? Like you, you put a fence around a pool, you put a safe around your gun, but I think that a lot of the times it doesn't come across that simple when people talk about it. Um, what do you think that the public narrative or the conversation is getting wrong about guns? There are two big things that I would highlight now, which is uh, the misperception about the types of gun deaths that are most common. So mass shootings dominate the media narrative but gun suicides are actually the leading cause of firearm death in this country. More than 60% of gun-related deaths each year are the result of suicide. And there are different strategies to reduce different kinds of gun-related deaths. So it's important that we are thinking beyond just the most sensational and high-profile uh, types of gun-related death. The other is there's a misperception that A, we don't know what works, and B, no one agrees on sort of what strategies are effective, and so we can't get anything done. And both of those, I think, are false narratives. So 
people say, oh, the CDC hasn't been funding gun violence research for 25 years because of the Dickey Amendment and funding cuts, et cetera. And so Mm -hmm. we have no idea what works. Well, there are other Uh branches of the federal government and private philanthropies that have been funding gun violence research in the gap um, that was created by Mm -hmm. no CDC funding. So there are actually several things that we know work. Uh, requiring prospective gun purchasers to get a license, um, ensuring that there are thorough and complete background checks, uh, making sure that, you know, there's a little bit of time uh, between the purchase and when someone can acquire a firearm, uh, policies that temporarily separate someone from their firearms during a time of crisis. Uh, what, do, what do you mean separating people from their guns when they're having a crisis? Like, uh, what is that? What does that what does that look like? Sure. So um, I was referring to extreme risk protection order laws. So uh, police or family member can petition the court uh, and say this person is uh, experiencing a crisis where they may be at risk of harming themselves or others. And for the duration of the order, which could be either a temporary order that can span a couple of weeks or an order that could last up to a year, that person uh, has to surrender their firearms and can't acquire new ones. And when the order passes or lapses um, or when they petition the court and say, okay, that crisis is no longer an issue, I'm, you know, I'm feeling better now, they get their firearms back. This isn't sort of a permanent ban, but recognizing that people go through stuff and that may elevate their risk, uh, you know, of particularly for suicide. Um, and so temporarily making sure that they don't have access to firearms. That seems super reasonable. Right. Again, it's not a permanent thing. It's not saying that anyone who's upset uh, about something is going to lose their farm. But when there's really a documented level of elevated risk where you have to prove to a judge through, you know, through due process um, that there is a a sustained um, concern. Anyway, so there, there are a number of policies that we know can be effective at moving the needle to reduce violence. In Washington, D.C., This is a polarizing issue. Policymakers Mm -hmm. don't want to find common ground to move things forward. Outside of Washington, lots of people agree on these issues. um, And it's about making sure that we're focusing on this, uh, these areas of agreement, which is going to give us opportunities to move things forward, rather than spending all of our time talking about the things we don't agree on, because that's not effective. So, Do you think that the solution is more regulation, not less guns? It's a really good question. So we have tons and tons of guns in the U.S. We have at least least as many guns as we have people, probably even more than that. More guns than people? More guns than people. We actually don't know. (laughs) Yeah, we actually have no really good, like, solid number on how many guns there are, because um, that's not, we have um, background checks. That's sort of what we measure, how many background checks are being conducted in a given month or a given year. But I could walk into a gun shop, undergo one background check, but buy three guns, for example. So we sort of have an an estimate, and we do surveys. You know, the general social survey uh, helps us understand how many households have guns, how many people own guns. But anyway, it's an estimate, at least as many guns as there are people. Um, That does not feel great. (laughs) 
So on one hand, um, you could argue, well, there are at least as many guns as there are people. So like the horse is out of the barn. There's really nothing yeah. that we could do. <laughs> yeah. Right. But there are at least as many guns as there are people. And while we still have far too many firearm deaths, you know, we have hundreds of millions of guns and we have 40,000 firearm related deaths every year, including homicide and suicide. So a lot of those guns are in the hands of people who are responsible gun owners who store them safely, who use them safely, who engage in safe sales practices. So they're, you know, they're not selling to people who might be prohibited. So this is why it's so important to engage gun owners in the conversation because lots of them behave responsibly and we have no concern that they're going to use their guns in a way that they shouldn't, right? So that that's one thing um, to keep in mind. What about it, like if I wanted to sell you my gun? Like are the rules different for sales like person to person? Is that where we start to get more of the, the rogue agents in there? Like what what's happening with that? There's no requirement uh, under federal law that people who are engaged in private sales have to check someone's background. So that's a, a pretty big gap because we know, we estimate, I should say, because much like mm -hmm. most things, we have survey data, we have estimates. Around 20% of gun sales in the country are private sales, private transfers. And so 20% of people who are buying guns uh, may not be subject to a background check. Well, for research for this episode, I went on Guns Craigslist. I forget. Arms, Armslist.com. Yeah, to see if I could buy an assault rifle, which is illegal in the state that I live in. And there's one like 12 miles from me, and I got up to bringing money there to this guy to get this gun. And it was, it took me like an hour. Yeah. And there's some really interesting work where people have examined, um, the likelihood on these listings that people will say you need a background check or not. And far too many either don't say they're going to check your background or make it clear that they won't check your background. Mm -hmm. And so that's a concern, right? If we think about an analogy, something we're all super used to flying on an airplane, mm -hmm. right? Let's like imagine okay. it's not COVID, but you know, we're going to go fly on an airplane. Okay. So if I buy a ticket directly from the airline, when I get to the airport, mm -hmm. I have to go through the TSA security checkpoint. Make sure I'm not bringing anything dangerous onto the airplane with me. Check my identity, right? We know, mm -hmm. yep, Cass, this ticket has your name on it. Cass, you get to get on the airplane. Let's say I buy it from uh, a travel agent. Travel agent books my ticket for me. I get the ticket from the travel agent. I get to the airport. I get to go right onto the airplane without having to stop at TSA. No one's checking my ID. No one's making sure I'm not bringing anything dangerous. Which is basically what we're doing when we let people buy a gun via private sale, right? So... I mean, what do we do about it? You said that the, what is it, the horse is out of the barn already? How do you, how do you get a handle on all of these guns being bought and traded by private citizens? So 21 states and Washington, D.C. have filled this gap by requiring uh, background checks for private sales. Some of the challenges mm. with this, these kinds of laws, enforcement can be very challenging. 
um, you're still reliant on the federal background check system, which has gaps. There are delays in records being reported into the system, and it's based on demographic information that can miss 10% or more of prohibiting conditions. So the system for purchasing that we think is most effective, and research bears this out, is requiring prospective gun purchasers to get a license. You would apply to state or local law enforcement. They would check both the federal system and state and potentially local records to make sure there isn't any gap in the information. This is often facilitated with a fingerprint, so they're less likely to miss information. And there's more time to complete the background check. So rather than saying you have to know whether CAS is legal to buy a gun within three days, it could be 30 days, maybe even longer. But the point is, it's a background check has to be complete and the answer about whether I'm a lawful purchaser before I can walk out of the gun store with a firearm. Mm -hmm. And these laws, these permit to purchase laws or handgun purchaser licensing laws are called a few different things. They're associated with fewer straw purchases. That means someone who's not prohibited goes in, buys a gun, and gives it to somebody else who wants to use it in crime. Uh, there are lower rates of homicide and suicide, lower rates of law enforcement officers being shot in the line of duty. And some of our new work um, that we're working on right now is suggesting that these licensing laws also reduce police-involved shootings. Um, and because they can uh, reduce access to firearms by high-risk people who then may divert them into an underground market and sort of have yeah. more guns in interactions with law enforcement that could result in a fatality. So when you get the license that you're talking about, is you, you get your license to own a gun, but then is your gun registered to you the way we do with a car? No, so there are prohibitions on gun registries at the federal level. So um, there are no registries that tie a gun to an individual the way you do cars, at least not federally. A, a handful of states mm -hmm. do have registries. So California has a registry um, for all guns. Maryland, for example, has one only for handguns, um, which that can be a really good tool to help researchers know uh, sort of how guns are moving through markets. But it can also help law enforcement if... CAS is popping on, you know, the background check system is buying lots of guns and all these guns are being recovered in crime. But, you know, law enforcement yeah. is going to be like, hey, where are these guns that you're buying? You know, what's happening with them? And, and it can be. Is CAS an arms? <laughs> exactly. Or in the case of extremist protection orders, knowing mm -hmm. the guns that someone owns can be a yeah. really effective way to make sure during their time of crisis those guns are removed from the home and they're prevented from acquiring more temporarily. Um, and that can make sure that people who are too dangerous to own them, either because of some criminal activity that's made them prohibited or because of some elevated risk of crisis, um, that they don't have access to guns. Wouldn't it also like help keep police safe? Like if you're going to go into a home, if you know what guns they own? It could. Like so, you... It could certainly. So um, one... Uh, risk uh, when officers are responding to calls, particularly domestic violence calls. You know, it's already been violence. Mm -hmm. You're responding to a tense situation. If there are guns in the home, you know, that can lead to challenging situations and dangerous consequences. But I think the other important thing to keep in mind, like law enforcement interact with people all day, every day. Um, and 
while too many of them are killed and assaulted, it's still a, a very rare outcome. And so while it's important that we're keeping everyone safe, community and law enforcement, I also want to stress that, you know, these um, are very rare outcomes in terms of law enforcement being killed. But sort of it goes the other way, too. If there are less um, access to firearms by dangerous or high-risk individuals, police may be less inclined to assume someone is armed or interact in a way um, when someone is armed. And so it can reduce police-involved shootings also. So do you support the idea of registering a gun to an individual? I think that there are certainly benefits to requiring registration um, of guns. Uh, and currently, some states are choosing uh, to do that to help them implement their policies. For me, I think it makes sense. There are a lot of sort of dangerous things that can be done with a firearm. There are a lot of dangerous things that can be done with a car. Uh, the question for me, though, in terms of what policies uh, sort of I tend to think about as effective and what I'm supporting is what the research bears out. Um, and right now, the most effective policies that we can turn to are uh, requiring prospective gun purchasers to get a license and extremist protection orders that temporarily uh, remove guns from the home. Also, making sure people are storing their guns safely in the home so that kids can access them are important to prevent youth suicide. I have not tried to get a gun license, but bring in the safe that you're going to put your gun in. Is that like a reasonable requirement? I mean, obviously not if it's an enormous safe, but like, or provide some type of evidence that you have a place to secure this safely. Yeah. So some, uh, A, I'll say there are a range of ways that you can store your guns safely. Uh, you know, sure. obviously making sure they're stored unloaded is important. That way if someone gains access to it, they don't sort of have access to a loaded firearm. But you could store your guns with cable locks, trigger locks, internal barrel locks. It could be in a case. It could be in a safe. Right? There's, a, there's a range of ways that people can store their guns. And it depends on how quickly they need to access them, how frequently they use them, all those sorts of things. Uh, in Maryland, for example, every new handgun that's sold uh, mm -hmm. requires a built-in locking device or an internal barrel lock so that the gun is not operable when the um, thing, the, when the barrel lock is in place, for example. So issues with trigger locks, a gun could be loaded with a round in the chamber. You could stick a barrel lock on it or a trigger lock on it, excuse me, and it's still like you knock that trigger lock off and it's a loaded firearm ready to go. Right. Cable locks go through the magazine port and out the ejection well. And, you know, you can't have them loaded, which is a, a step up. And then the barrel lock, uh, the internal barrel lock, you know, again, it's unloaded um, and the slide won't move while that locks in place. Um, so making it a little bit harder to use. So there, there are a range of strategies. One thing I think we're missing a missed opportunity um, is thinking of ways that we can promote the behaviors we want to see, just like we do with other sort of public benefit things, right? Okay. Uh, we give tax breaks for people who buy electric or hybrid vehicles. 
you know, you put solar panels on your house, you get a tax break. If we want people to store their guns safely, let's give them a tax break on acquiring the types of devices that they use to engage in safe storage. Because gun safes can be really expensive. There are some less expensive ones. but My grandpa's is big. (laughs) Like, I could get in it. They both can be really expensive, but lots of people own lots of guns, rifles and shotguns, as well as handguns. And if you make it more affordable or incentivize them acquiring these kinds of safe storage devices, then they may be more likely to use them. Yeah, that's a great idea. I've actually never really thought about that. You know, one of the things we we try to think about in our center is not just sort of telling people what they should and shouldn't be doing, but engaging with people who have experience and talking about the kinds of things that would work for them. So that actually came out of a focus group that we did with gun owners, asking them how they behave with their guns, how they store them, how mm-hmm. they you know, sell them, the kinds of things they do and, and don't do and won't do with guns. And it's, bit, it's always informative, regardless of the topic, to talk about people mm-hmm. who have experience with the issue uh, and having them be part of the solution. This question's a bit darker, I guess, but do you think that our gun problem is uniquely American? So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a challenging question because there are so many facets. But when we look at some of the other comparisons, putting guns aside for a moment, we don't have higher rates of mental illness. We don't have higher rates of other kinds of crime. Uh, We don't have higher rates of playing video games, you know, or watching violent movies or any of these other kinds of things. And yet we still have a homicide rate that's higher than peer nations, largely driven by our extraordinarily high rates of gun-related deaths. And to me, that sort of raises a question of how can we make sure that guns are only in the hands of people who can legally own them and what procedures or systems do we need to put in place to make sure that guns stay with people who can safely and responsibly use them and not fall into the hands of people who want them for, you know, to harm themselves or others. And that requires better laws, to better systems to enforce the laws we already have and making sure that the evidence-based policies that are emerging, like extreme risk protection orders, are available in all states, not just in the 19 states that currently have them. So if I'm hearing you right, you're agreeing it is a, a problem unique to us, right? It, yeah, uh, yes. It is, I think, the unique part, the part of the problem that is unique to the United States is that we have so many more guns than yeah. other countries. It's not necessarily that having guns is a bad thing, right? There are lots of people who safely own them and safely use them. But we have gaps in our laws, both at the federal and state level, that make it way too easy for people we've all agreed are too dangerous to have guns to get them. And then they're used in crime, they're used in homicide, uh, they're used to harm oneself. uh, And so... The activities we need to engage in moving forward need to be respectful of, you know, legally owned and safely used firearms, but also recognizing that a little bit of inconvenience that, you know, I may need to take a little bit extra time or go through a few more extra steps is going to make it that much harder for someone who shouldn't have a gun to get one. 
there's, you know, the common refrain, um, criminals don't obey gun laws. You're just sort of inconveniencing law-abiding citizens and we shouldn't have them. But A, that argument would never fly for any other topic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, people still drink yeah. and drive, so let's just, you know, do away with drunk driving laws. Let's just let them. Right, that's silly. Um, yeah. And so, the, you know, I, I always just sort of ignore that um, comment. Mm -hmm. But actually, when you have robust systems in place, it is harder for people who shouldn't have guns to get them because less people are willing to buy a gun and divert it into the underground gun market. Uh, less people are willing to engage in sort of risky sales and not conduct a background check. And so fewer guns are available uh, that constrains local sources and people have mm -hmm. to bring guns in from other states. They become more expensive and harder to get and finding sort of a trusted source becomes much more challenging. Then that, that bears out in the data with, with what we see in terms of um, gun trafficking. So I do not personally own a gun, but my family owns quite a bit. Um, and I mean, I grew up in Nevada. They're an open carry state. Like it, guns, it's not like I'd be like, what is that? You know, they've been pretty, they've been around for a lot of my life. And it's the, the gun owners are never the ones that I'm worried about. Like it's all, all the people that I know personally that own guns are very responsible. Like they have them in safes and like when anytime that they use them, it's all about safety, whether that be hunters or like former law enforcement in my family, but it's the dumbasses that I feel are ruining <laughs> it for the group. Just to be candid is it's like, cause if I was a gun owner, I'd, I feel like I would want to double down on the type of regulation that you're talking about because it's like, it keeps the dumbasses from making us look bad. Absolutely. And you know, to, to use your phrase, it only takes one dumbass to make people want stronger laws, right? So right. when when we were doing our focus groups with gun owners, we heard a lot about them feeling personal responsibility to make sure that when they sold a gun, the person wasn't prohibited or wasn't going to use it to harm other people because one person does something dumb with a gun and it makes all the gun owners look bad. Um, and yeah. so... You know, it, there are so many gun owners. You know, we do these nationally representative surveys every two years on concrete gun policies, and lots of gun owners support these policies that re require background checks, require licensing, because they recognize it's in gun owners' best interests to keep guns out of the hands of people who would use them irresponsibly or use them to harm someone else. Um, and it, you know, it. That's, again, why it's so important that we engage gun owners as part of the conversation, because they have credibility as messengers to other gun owners. They can talk with experience about what this means and, and uh, how they want to be part of the solution. Um, and, you know, un unfortunately, a lot of folks in public health and in other fields are uh, less likely to engage on this topic in terms of co-creating solutions. Um, but that's something that I, I'm very happy to be able to contribute to. Yeah, I, I imagine that your perspective is very, very needed in this area. Um, I want to ask you about background checks because you mentioned them just a little bit ago, and it's something I'm super curious about. I was under the impression that universal background checks, they're the they're what we need. That's the easy solution. I think it pulls well publicly. It's it's Joe Biden's gun policy is universal background checks. But I was reading an article that was telling me that that is not the be all end all solution. 
What do you think about that? And can you explain to me why I'm wrong? <laughs> so background checks are a necessary foundation to enforce all the other laws that we have in place. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have, for example, in the state of Florida, a minimum age law, they say you have to be 21 to buy a semi-automatic semi rifle, for example, but they don't require background checks for private sales. So someone who's not 21, who shouldn't be allowed to buy one if they went to a federally licensed dealer, could find either someone they know or go on Facebook or armslist.com or gun show, wherever, uh, and they could find someone who would sell them a gun without a background check. So they've subverted the background check requirement or the, the semi-automatic minimum age law by not requiring a background check. So they are very important to making sure that domestic violence misdemeanors, domestic violence restraining orders, extreme risk protection order laws, all these policies that we put in place to, to limit access to, to people who are at high risk, background checks are necessary to make sure that those can actually function. But when background, when the background check law, the Brady bill was put into place, you know, sort of early mid nineties, uh, we didn't rely on computers as much, you know, we were using paper records, um, and reporting into the system was very poor. And so a lot of the evaluations of the early background check laws are evaluating really flawed policies. So states that have extended this to um, private sale background checks, uh, we're not finding that these laws are effective at preventing fatal outcomes for gun-related deaths uh, and injuries. But um, when you look at more recent changes uh, that utilize the purchaser licensing system as the mechanism for ensuring everyone is undergoing a background check, that's when you start to see benefits. So we need background checks for all sales. It's supported by the vast majority of adults, but it can't be the end point. Now, of course, everyone is, you know, not everyone, but folks uh, who always make this argument will say, well, see, Cass, you just admitted that this is just the first step towards, you know, the next policy where you're going to take everyone's guns away, which is not at all what I'm saying. Uh, there have been states with purchaser licensing laws in place for decades, and there's never been a mass confiscation. Um, but rather, we see these policies provide a robust system for applying all of these other screening uh, criteria to make sure that dangerous people aren't getting them. So that was a really long way to say background checks are necessary, but not sufficient. And they shouldn't be the last step in our path to reducing gun violence. I, wouldn't that same logic apply to like cars? Like it's like, if you make me get a license and you make me register my vehicle, the next step is you confiscating my car. And like, that's not happening. My car is out there. You know, let's ban cars, <laughs> get them out of here, get rid of them. They're too dangerous. No, tear up right. the roads. No, the strategy was let's work with car manufacturers to design safer cars. So we worked with civil engineers to design safer roads, better lighting. You know, it used to be you'd go off of a highway, um, you know, on an off ramp and they're like huge cement blocks and, you know, holding up these signs and people were like, that's super dangerous. Let's make breakaway signs and let's put guardrails so that we don't drive off bridges and those kinds of things. And even though we're now driving millions and millions of more motor vehicle miles every year, our rates of motor vehicle fatalities have been declining. 
And there's always a human component, right? We have distracted driving, we have drunk driving, we have some of these other pieces, but even with all of those human elements, we've been able to design cars and roadways and lighting to make everyone safer. When we think about a public health approach to reducing gun violence, we need to take that same strategy. What, what ways can we design firearms uh, to be less harmful? Maybe we have fewer bullets that a gun can hold so that you know, if someone is intent on harming lots of people, they have to reload more frequently before they can continue on. You know, in the um, motor vehicle realm, we've instituted graduated driver's licensing. We say, hey, maybe 16-year-olds shouldn't get a full license because they might be a bit dangerous on the road. Let's slowly have them work their way up. Maybe we can take the same approach to guns. You want to own lever action or bolt action rifles or revolvers. Maybe you have one kind of license that requires, you know, a certain set of activities you have to engage in. You want semi-automatic rifles that can accept large capacity magazines. Maybe you get the next level of license up, right? So thinking about machine guns are a good example, right? So we can't sell any more machine guns. We can't make new ones. But the people who own them, they still have them. They just had to go through a rigorous process to keep them. If you want to buy a suppressor, you have to go through a rigorous process to be able to get one. You almost never hear of suppressors and machine guns being used in crime in the U.S. because of the level of rigor that's required to get those those types of guns and those types of accessories. And so I think that is a suppressor and a silencer are those the yeah same thing? yes it's a suppressor yeah, i'm a newbie yeah there's you know the movies call them silencers it's not it doesn't really make it silent it just suppresses the the volume so it's less loud <laughs> so that, again like this is a terminology thing right it's important yeah um to use the right terminology but there are ways that we can take lessons from the way we've regulated other guns and accessories and the way we think about cars and other products that we know could produce harm if they're not you know used and owned properly and apply that to guns to help make everyone safer do you think I think a lot of the policies that you're proposing sound like they I mean they sound like no-brainers to me like obviously should do everything that you're proposing but I see real barriers to that if there is not some sort of federal standard. So I guess like, am I understanding you correctly that you think that guns should be regulated at a federal level instead of just a state level? I think there are benefits to regulating guns at the federal level. So currently the federal uh, laws set the floor. And so there's sort of minimum requirements that all states have to engage in, all federally licensed dealers, regardless of state have to follow the same rules. And then states can choose to pass stronger laws if they want. The challenge with that is we end up with a patchwork of laws across states where you've got New Jersey, for example, that has strong gun laws, but Virginia, you know, has less less strong laws, although they're they're better now. They just I should should give a props to Virginia. They did just recently pass some legislation. But like Tennessee, for example, has only uh, sort of minimum requirements. I don't know that they have much more beyond the federal level. Mm-hmm. And guns too often are bought in Tennessee and brought up to New York, New Jersey, Maryland. Um, and this, you know, borders are porous, right? People and products move across them by design. And guns, you know, aren't going to, ignore 
you know, and suddenly stop themselves from going across the border. Uh, and so it's important that we have some kind of uniform policy um, at a minimum, regardless of what state you're in and regardless of from whom you're buying a gun, everyone should have to undergo a background check, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense that if you live in California and, you know, don't want to undergo a background check, you can, you know, go drive across state lines and purchase a gun. Although Nevada has finally implemented their um, private sale background check law. So that's, that's a good for Nevada. States are very different. Montana and New York state have different demographics, different makeup, you know, different concerns. And so saying, okay, everyone has this minimum and you can't go higher. That might not be the greatest strategy. Instead, raising the floor to set some, some better minimum standards and then still giving states some flexibility in additional laws they might want to pass for right now, I think is a good strategy. I don't know that we're going to get to a place where federal law will um, go up high enough to be like at a, a Massachusetts kind of level in terms of regulation. And, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing right now. I think incrementally improving our firearm laws ensuring that, you know, people get comfortable with the idea that this policy isn't a mass confiscation, I think is going to help us make progress. All right, Cass, I just have one more question for you. It's what I like to close out with. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I mean, this was this was super thorough. It was really fun, too, by the way. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I would just I would just add the thing that I always say uh, whenever I get a chance to talk with people about guns and gun policy uh, is that there's a lot that people agree upon in this country. Gun owners, non-gun owners, Republicans and Democrats, independents, moderates, conservatives, whoever. NRA members, even, there are a lot of things that people think make sense. Like, you should undergo a background check every time you buy a gun, doesn't matter who you buy it from. Um, and the focusing in on those areas of agreement, that's a really important first step. Well, thanks for having me. All right, Cass, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. And honestly, I don't see the guns issue going away anytime soon since there is no simple solution. So I hope that you will come back on the show and explain any updates to your research or any policy updates that uh, come out of the Biden administration. Absolutely. Anytime. We well, you know, I also love to bake. So maybe next time we can talk about my, my gluten-free cupcake recipes. <laughs> <laughs> okay you got it uh guns and gluten-free recipes that's dr cass crifasi everybody um thank you that's it for that's it for me thanks for tuning into this episode of mod pod if you have any thoughts you can always send your comments to talk at moderatepartypodcast.com or find me on social you guys know the drill if you enjoyed this episode please share it Give us a rating and be sure to subscribe. Take care. I'll see you next week.